Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital to the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Good morning. What a wonderful time to join together to worship our King uh, and be edified through that worship as Jordan has just prayed for us. Um, Let's go ahead and turn to Ephesians 6. We are going to be in verse 17 this morning. As you do so, just let me remind you that we are going to have a time between the services after this one and before the next one, about 10.35 to 10.50, about 15 minutes. All of those would like to may join us in the auditorium here to pray uh, for the salvation of the Riau Malayu people in Indonesia. Uh, so if you'd like to do that from 10.35 to 10.50, we're asking everybody else to kind of clear out of this area so we can just take that time to pray. Um, I just want to take a moment also to remember and say welcome to all those, of course, that are joining us via live stream. Um, We long to see you. We want you to be with us. Um, We're praying for you. You are not forgotten in any way. Um, And we we know that there are legitimate reasons to be careful and, and to be wondering what's going on in the midst of all of this. And we pray for you and long for you back with us in full fellowship in the body again soon. It's not easy, and we trust that God will hold you fast, and we're praying towards that end. Let's go ahead and turn to Ephesians 6. Um, Again, like I said, we're just going to be in verse 17 this morning. Uh, I thought I would be in verse 17 through 20, but as I'm working this passage through and trying to put things together, I realized by Thursday, it's pretty late, that there's a huge break between 17 and 18, so I had to make a decision, and, and at that time, I realized I was going to take the time and just preach verse 17 today, so it will be that verse Um, But as we do so, let's start by reading verse 14 through 17, and then we'll pray. Ephesians 6, 14 through 17. This is God's word. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, the writer John tells us, John tells us that you are the Word. You are the fullest revelation of who God is. And this morning we join to praise your name. The one who has died, the one who has risen, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and the one who is coming again. We worship you this morning and are glad in the works that you have done. I ask now as we open your word that you would help us to be hearers, that your Holy Spirit would drive these words deep into our hearts, that the gospel would show us our dependence on ourselves and our need for you. We ask that you would work in your people what you have promised to do, faithfulness, and Lord, that we rely completely on you. We thank you for your care and ask that this morning you would use this word to change us, that we might be better declarers of your grace and your kingdom and that Jesus Christ is Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Some leaders call it a circle of safety. You may have heard this kind of language. Others call it teamwork. 
Um, yet others say that there are safety in numbers and it's important to make sure that you are part of that number. It's a vital message that many of our elite fighting forces understand really out of necessity. They understand that they must work together. Our Marines learn it quite early in boot camp when they realize they're not supposed to be using words like I and me and myself. And then you replace those words with we, us, ourselves. And the strength of the unit is multiplied when there is a true sense of camaraderie or unity within that group, right? It's said that of the Spartan warriors, their greatest crime was to lose their shield. Not another piece of armor, but their shield. Uh, we might think that was a sword or maybe the helmet, but the shield was considered the most important. Why? Well, it, it's not maybe what we think right away. It was because the shield was used to protect not only a lone soldier, but everyone in teamwork together to guard the whole. It was used when the fighting force would contract and the fighters would stand side by side and withstand the enemy. Thus, you can get it, right? If you lose your shield, you have nothing to do but create a breach there for all that to come through on. And so it was this huge thing if a soldier were to lose his shield because it would compromise the whole. It's basic and important tenet of strong organization. United we stand, divided we fall. We understand this. But despite the, the logic of this argument, and the good logic, it's not actually spelled out this way in the scriptures, or not actually spelled out this way we might think in the armor of God. At least how we might not think. We're part of the body of Christ. Here we sit and gather to worship Christ. And as we look around, we realize that we are part of his body. And especially, it might seem strange to us because we often preach the truth that he has made us one in him. Uh, but we realize that the armor of God is not the armor of other Christians. It's an important designation. Uh, what I really mean is that not one Christian should be relying on another Christian for his strength and protection. Uh, this is not to say in any way, of course, that we do not need one another. We know this to be true. Uh, we understand it. And that all too often, we may end up borrowing the world's terms very sincerely, but truly, lean on me when you're not strong. Right? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great one. It should be a Christian anthem, we kind of think. The problem is the Bible doesn't say exactly that. It says something different. It points our eyes somewhere else. We didn't sing about the strength of God's body this morning. We sang about the strength of our Lord the one who was able to overcome sin and make us his own. And thus we need to look at the one who is truly our protection and one that's truly our strength. We hear here that Paul exhorts us to pray for all the saints eventually. In the next couple of verses, we're gonna learn this. He's gonna call us to pray for one another. And you and I know in John 13, 34 and 35 that we are to love one another, that we are to be all about caring for each other. But that is not to confuse where our confidence lies. Our confidence is in God alone. We learned an important lesson in chapter four even, if you remember this, concerning that we need to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We need to be unified. We need to look out for one another. But we do not ultimately derive our strength or our protection from one another. Again, I, I don't wanna make too much of this point because that's not necessarily the big point in our text today but I do think it's worth our consideration as we come to this. I do think it's important application for us as we think about the work and word of God in Ephesians 6, 17. 
Now, if you look today's passage here, it points us to God-given gifts. There's no salvation outside of our God. There are no words, no other words that can cut through the heart of a depraved soul except the words of God empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. So today, we're actually directed to look at God and what he has done and what he says. If I were to give you a handout, it'd be simple. There'd be one major thing at the top and two sub points. The first major thing, because again, this is still falling under to stand, right? He's told us to stand, but this would be the idea. To stand against the schemes of the devil, we must be confident in God. That's the message. He gives us two sub points. He says to be confident in God's work and to be confident in God's word. I didn't be clever about that. It's actually just right here. So you'll see it as we work through this here. We're going to start out by talking about the structure of these sentences and specifically the verbs and the verbals that are used. Now, I know I just lost some of you, but just hold on a second. This is really important, not because doing Greek exegesis and analysis of structure is so much holier than not doing it, but clarity when we come to understanding Scripture is vitally important for us. So let me explain a little bit and kind of give us a look at this. Uh, There are six pieces of armor, and they all belong together, right? We know that. There are going to be some additional comments here at verses 18 through 20, but we can pretty easily see that these six pieces of armor belong together. At the beginning, I said that they were kind of split between, you might have heard me say this, at the end between 17 and 18, but there's also another split between 16 and 17. If you remember, last week we covered four parts of this armor, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace, and the shield of faith. Those are the four pieces that we talked about. And all four of these pieces are parallel. What I mean by that is they all begin with participles that point back to that verb about standing, to stand, and tell us how to do it. They point back there. This just means that when Paul wrote the paragraph, if you and I were reading it in Greek, we would immediately pick up on these participles. They're all parallel. All four of these are supposed to be in a list and help us understand that they are together. But when you get to the last two parts of this armor, the helmet and the sword, they're set off with a different thing, with an imperative verb instead of these participles. And you may see it if you're reading in the New American Standard Bible or if you're in the King James Version, but it's tough to see in the ESV, the one that we normally use. In verse 16, the verb take up is actually another participle. So if you look at that, don't be fooled. That's not a new imperative verb. That's another one of those participles explaining how to stand firm. That's simply what's going on here. Let me, let me do this. I'm going to kind of give you my own translation so you can hear the difference of what is going on here and you can pay attention. He starts off with the main verb all the way back at the beginning there in verse 14. You must stand, therefore. Then he lists four things, right? Four ways to stand. Having, stand. having fastened on the belt of truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Having put on the uh, gospel of peace. Having taken up the shield of faith. Do you hear that? Do you hear how he's saying the same thing over? But then he says something different in verse 17. He says, and you must take. That's an imperative verb. And it's a seemingly, a seemingly new command here. Like he's changing lanes at least a little bit. And you must take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. And at first, it seems like he's starting a new command for us here, as though he's like, okay, I'm going to move on to the next thing. Uh, But we we need to be careful here. If we were just looking at the grammar and not looking at the context here, we might be uh, thinking that this is a new command. Somehow that he talked about standing firm, but now he's going to talk about taking up, as though it's a secondary thing. 
But it doesn't make sense for Paul to start a new command here, especially since he's still talking about the armor of God. There's another clue here. He adds in verse 17, the first word, even in our English Bible, is and. He's bringing us together and showing us that this is whole one list of armor. So as the reader, we need to consider why he's changed from using these participles to using some kind of imperative verb, you must take. Like it's clear to us that there's some sort of definite break and it's done on purpose. Paul's not being willy-nilly with words here. So it's us that should ask the question, why? Why did he do it this way? So I want you to think about this. I think it's most helpful for us to consider what these different parts of the armor are, these different virtues and gifts that he's told us. Let me just list them. Just just think about this for a minute. I want you to think in your thoughts for a moment. Truth, righteousness, readiness, faith, salvation, the word of God. Think about all these things together. As the old saying goes, one of these things is not like the other. In fact, it's actually two of these things are not like the other. Uh, The first four pieces of armor, the ones that we covered last week, seem to be aspects of the gospel that we participate in, in some way. Things that we can do and act on and be involved in, somehow that require our participation. But the last two seem to be things that no human could ever generate or participate in, almost as if they're straight from God, more, if you could say, a pure gift of God. So think about these things, truth, righteousness, readiness, faith. These are the virtues that we covered, the attributes that we learn and practice by God's power. But then you've got salvation and the word of God empowered by the Spirit. These are gifts given by God that bolster our confidence in Him. If in that sense, they're a more objective gift that's given to us. And we know this, gifts must be received More than that, they also must be put into practice and and kind of like the virtues in some way, but we can see the difference in these at their very basic unit. There's something that God has done for us. These last two pieces of armor lift our eyes away from ourselves, away from even the church around us, and cause us to look straight at Him, the one who has given us salvation, the one who speaks His word, the gospel. We're going to learn then that our confidence, in in these two spots right here, in this last verse, that our confidence must be in God, first in his work, but then also in his word. So let's begin at the beginning of verse 17 with his work. Verse 17 says, and take the helmet of salvation. Now you'll probably remember um, in our introduction two weeks ago, I referenced a few passages in Isaiah. One of them was Isaiah 59, 17. And if you did not drown Jordan out this morning, he kind of preached my sermon already. But since many of you are probably just settling, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt, um, you didn't hear all of that, so I'm going to go through this again to help us. I know a lot of snickering out there. Give him some space. He's working through this. This is going to be really helpful for us to see that Isaiah 59 is the foundation of what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 6. In Isaiah 59, we know that he says this, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. In Isaiah 59, Yahweh is poised to save his people and judge their enemies. He's ready to do battle. Think about this. He is putting on this armor, and he will win. He will secure protection for his people. Salvation. But I want you to ask this question. Protection from who? I mean, he's been dealing with this throughout the whole book of of, of Isaiah. Who are the enemies of the people? 
If you and I remember back in Exodus and Joshua, God was the strong warrior that defeated Amalek and also the Canaanites. But how about now? Now, we might think we know a little bit about this section, and hopefully we do. We might think differently and say, well, how about the ones that have taken them into captivity? Maybe those are the ones that we're talking about. The problem is, by the end of 55, this whole literary structure has kind of closed that down and that he has actually finished saving his people from those from Assyria and Babylon and Persia. And he starts this new theological unit from Isaiah 56 to 59, which does not mention Persia, which does not mention Assyria, which does not mention Babylon at all. So we need to ask, if it's not the usual suspects, who is it? Who's the enemy then? We need to start by reading the beginning of Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56 through 59 is a complete unit, and it's helping us understand, and we're going to go back to the beginning of this to help us understand how we get to Isaiah 59. Let me read the first two verses. He says this, Thus says the Lord, here's his command, ready? Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come, and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. This is what God requires of his people. He has saved them from, his, from their enemies. He has vanquished their foes. And now he calls them to live like God, to keep justice and to do righteousness. And the people say, okay, we can do that. God saved us from these other countries, this physical harm from our enemies, So now we know what we are supposed to do. But of course, they can't do it. And they find themselves in utter problems and failures. Listen to Isaiah's summary of how they did at keeping justice and doing righteousness. This is the beginning of Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters witness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. Let me go on though. It's not done. Verse eight. The way of peace they do not know. And there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Verse 12, For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. And thus, we get to the part that we talked about two weeks ago, Isaiah 59, 14 through 17. He says this, Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and the uprightness cannot enter. Here we go. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. And his own arm brought salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. 
Are, are, did, you, did you catch it? Who's the enemy? Who does the Lord need to save Israel from? It's not the surrounding country that's attacked them and treated them badly. It's the enemy of sin. It's the enemy of rebellion against all that God has called them to do. It's their own sin. It's the fact that they cannot keep justice. It's the fact that they have lived dishonestly, dishonestly, deceitfully, and they cannot do righteousness. They are going to be destroyed because of their own sin against God. Sin is what they've chosen, and sin is their enemy. God's people do not ultimately need to be saved from the world powers, or even, get this, the power of the wicked one. Do we, do we all understand what's going on here? Like, for, for ourselves, for a moment? What is your ultimate problem? I want you to think about this. What is your ultimate problem? Because I'll tell you, it's exactly the same one that we find in Isaiah 59. Our ultimate problem is our own sin. It's that it's not it's an impersonal sin either. It's directed against the righteous one who created you and me. Today, our doctors and our therapists and our psychologists and our professors will tell us that if we have problems, that we either are under attack from bad people or maybe bad circumstances or that we need therapy to kind of get good thinking and recondition ourselves and to build ourselves up and tell ourselves good things so that we can start thinking positively. I, I, I'm amazed in the belief in positivity. I mean, I hear this phrase in good vibes. That's, that's what I need. I just need to be positive. I need to, I got to have the good life and just think positively. That's what I can do. And things will be right. I'm amazed that we are willing to borrow the lie from the evil one, that the problem is external to us. It's not. We see this from the scripture. The Bible's very clear. For a sinner, the biggest threat he faces is not from Satan. Yep, listen to that one, that's right. For a sinner, the, the, the biggest threat that he faces is not from Satan or from people who hate him or from physical harm. For a sinner, the biggest threat in the universe is God. If we don't get this, we don't rightly see who God is, the almighty creator. This is extremely important. His wrath, his almighty hand of judgment against those who have sinned against him. And in case you thought that you were a pretty good person, let me just show you what Romans 3 tells us. Paul says in Romans 3, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, that's everyone in the entire world, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Is it pretty clear? No one. No one does what is right. The biggest threat to a sinful humanity comes from the biggest entity in the universe. And we all know who that is. It is the one who judges righteously, who is created in benevolence and love and yet his creation has turned against him in wickedness. That's the biggest threat. He is holy and just, and he cannot allow sin to go unanswered or unpunished. And the punishment is clear. We know that from Romans 6.23. It is death. That's what we deserve for this sin. But because of his steadfast love, because of his promises, he has made a way to save his people. 
This is not a small turn. This is the glory of the gospel. Remember what Isaiah says, then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He went to battle, not against the kingdoms and the rulers only, but against sin and death itself. You know this, death is swallowed up in victory. 1 Corinthians 15 says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. In his immense mercy, God promised that he would rescue his people. He promised it and put it on then his helmet of salvation. Instead of destroying every single person on earth, he sent the Son to take our place to receive our punishment, to bear our shame, to satisfy the justice of God. It's amazing. And ultimately to save us then from our enemy, sin against God. This is the salvation that Paul is talking about. He's talking about our salvation from sin and death and hell. He's talking about that which was won for us in Jesus Christ as he died our death and rose again, defeating death forever. So, in Ephesians 6, Paul points to salvation. Don't think of it as some sort of a small thing that we remember in the past where we were converted, we think. All that we know about salvation and understanding our salvation from the wrath of God is what he is wrapping us for, up for us here to show us what we have been saved from. In the Isaiah passage, we saw God wearing the helmet of salvation as he does the saving work for his people. But in Ephesians, we are the ones that are told to take this helmet of salvation and wear it, understanding the glorious power of God's saving work for his people. So the implications for this passage are clear. Think about this. God is not telling us to take a helmet of salvation so that we can go save ourselves. That would be against all of Scripture. He is pointing to what is ours in Jesus Christ our salvation, the work of God to save us from the power of sin and death and hell. And the result is absolute confidence. What, what, what can he take from us? Death? Come on. What do you think you have, Satan, against me? Do you realize that the ultimate entity in the entire universe was against me and my sin and he reached out in Jesus Christ and saved my soul? No one can touch me. No one can touch me because I have confidence in the work of God. This is the gospel. Seriously, Satan, for all your power and wit. If you remember, guys, he had a beginning. Just think about this for a moment with me. He was made. He used to not be, and then someone made him, right? He is not eternal. We're talking about a creature. Why should you and I be afraid of that guy when you and I have been saved by the one who made that guy? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Paul is pointing to our salvation, the work of God, to remind us that our ultimate confidence lies in God alone, the God who saves. Therefore, this is true armor for this battle. God has rescued us from death, wrath, and bondage. And we know who wins. 
We know that we are facing in the end will bring glory to God and honor to both him and his people as he ransoms them. This is the work of God that gives a Christian ultimate confidence. I could stop there, um, but I got to just do the rest of this verse here because it's just as good too. Not only does God show us through Paul, it points to God's work, but he also points to God's word. Look at 17 again. The verb carries over, so he's saying, and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, here we immediately get an explanation. Do you see this? We, we, we don't have to guess what the sword of the Spirit is, whereas some of the other things, we had to put those things together. He tells us right away. We're understanding, if we, if we didn't have that part, we'd be tempted to figure out, like, is the sword the Spirit? Is that what this is? But he makes it very clear. No, it's not like the belt of truth where the, you know, the belt was truth or the shield of faith where the shield was faith. We don't have to make guesses because the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. So the right question for us is, what is the Word of God then? It's, 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 it's this Word of God, and we all can naturally think we know exactly what he's talking about. And, and sometimes, don't get me wrong, I think we do. Most of us jump right to thinking it's the Bible, the Scriptures, the words of God. And this is certainly true. The Bible is God's Word, and we should regularly draw from it to renew our minds. We've talked about this. We should draw from our Bible memory, our reading, our meditation as we work through these passages. But don't think for a moment that just saying a Bible verse into the darkness is somehow the wielding of the sword of the Spirit. Uh, allow me a brief pastoral soapbox. Saying Bible verses isn't like casting a spell. Uh, there, there, there's Christian theology out there that will tell you something like this. Just repeat these words over and over again and something good will happen. Um, Satan isn't allergic to Bible verses. Just letting you know. He probably knows the Bible better than you and I do. Think about the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4. We find that Satan even uses the Bible to bolster his temptation. He and Jesus go back and forth in this rap battle of philosophy and Bible memory, back and forth to the point that Satan knows he cannot cause Jesus to stumble like the first Adam. Christ goes back to the word of God over and over again. But I want us to see that it's not that the words are magic. Uh, they are necessary and they are true. It contains the truth. But to think that somehow Satan was getting a little bit more upset every single time and he just eventually couldn't help it and he had to leave, that's silliness. It's not what's going on here. It's rather that Jesus did not quote arbitrary Bible verses. He didn't go back and say the same thing over and over and over again. Instead, he went to portions of Scripture that were directly at odds with what Satan was claiming in his temptation. In other words, Jesus knew the Bible. He understood that it was true, and he put these things together to be able to answer these temptations. It's extremely important because it shows us that Jesus understood and believed the Scriptures to be true, so much so that he was willing to forfeit all that seemed good and pleasurable and so glorious in the moment so that he could obey his Father. Jesus trusts God and his word. We watch in this epic battle of the titans, in a sense, play out in the wilderness. But Jesus, in human weakness, led by the Holy Spirit, responds to the schemes of the devil in faith, relying on the word of God. Now, as good as this is and as true it is, I want to make sure that we understand that Paul 
is most likely talking about more than that in Ephesians 6. You say, how could it be more than that? When we read Ephesians 6, 17, we read and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, we've heard this, this before, the Word of God. You've, you've heard this probably several times, both in the Old Testament and especially in the New. 1 Thessalonians 1.8, word of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, word of God. 2 Thessalonians 3.1, word of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 14.36, word of God. You get the point, there's actually more there, but I'm just gonna stop for the sake of time. Each time this phrase is used, it is referring not to the Bible, but to the gospel. When he talks about the word of the Lord or the word of God in these ways, in each one of these, I have, I think, I have seven different ones written down here. Each of them refer to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of salvation. The sword of the Spirit, therefore, is the gospel message. Certainly true that it's the word of God and there, there is truth bound up in all of that. We bound up in God's word or the Bible. But that's not the only thing that is unique about this passage. Uh, you've probably heard of the Greek word for word is logos. Uh, it's, a, it's a simple one that we probably hear. But there's another word for word, the one that's used here, it's the word rhema. Uh, it's not used as frequently as logos in the New Testament, but it's an important word to understand for us. It's oftentimes interchangeable with the word or speech that's represented by logos. But there's a small important nuance that will help us here. When the word logos is used, the writer almost always emphasizes the content of the word or message as the truth. But when the word rhema is used, the point of emphasis is on that which is spoken, almost referring a little bit more to the action of the speaking of this truth. And if this differentiation holds true, and I believe it does, it means that not only is God's word the gospel, but he is particularly encouraging God's people to take up the gospel and speak it, to use it properly. I think this is exactly what Paul is doing here, and it fits the nature of the piece of the armor, right? That the sword of the Spirit is at least two things. I want you just to point out here. First, it's the only piece of armor that is both defensive and offensive, right? This sword of the Spirit. The Christian who proclaims Christ, who regularly rehearses and believes and speaks the gospel, is outfitted with protection against the evil one. His own speaking is the clear call to others, but also to himself that Christ is king. So it is right, I'll say again, we've said it before, it is right for us to speak or preach the gospel to ourselves. It's more than just that, but it certainly is true. It's more than just that, though. When we take up the gospel and proclaim it, we send forth, think about this, what goes out, the message of light into the arena of darkness that is around us so that the world might hear the truth and be delivered from the power of devil, from sin, from death, in a sense, it's through the proclamation of the gospel of Christ's agenda that moves the agenda forward and that we go on the attack to make disciples. In the war of language, therefore, it's to conquer new ground in God's cause. We're not, we're not messing around here. Like this is, this is how he advances the kingdom. He never, as far as I know, writes it in a big cloud and people look up and they accept Christ. He uses his people over and over and over again. The weakness, the fool we know who we are. The foolishness of us, his people, to proclaim and witness the truth of Jesus Christ, our salvation. That's the first thing. But the second thing I want to notice about this real quick is, notice that it's not simply a magic spell or incantation of the right words. 
He doesn't even give us, in this passage, he doesn't give us the right words to say if that's what it would be. He doesn't give us what, the right gospel presentation to share each time. The words we say are certainly very important because they relay the truth and we should constantly work and understand the gospel well so that we can present it properly. But we must remember that it is not the sword of the Christian. It is the sword of the Spirit. Do you notice what he's like pointing to then? He's not even talking only about the, the, the revelation that we have given to us in the scriptures, which, goodness, it would be enough. But instead, he points to the third person of the Trinity and says it's the, it's the sword of the Spirit, of, that, of God, who does stuff with it and takes it and works it into people's hearts. That's what he calls this amazing thing. The gospel message is powerful and effective, not only because we get all the details right, because Lord knows sometimes we've done it really badly, and then sometimes we've done it really right, and nothing happens still. So, so what are we to think about this? When we get all this right, but because what is the power here? When the Holy Spirit empowers this message, he opens hearts. He shines the light of the gospel into a person so that they might have life. It is the Spirit who does this. The sword of the Spirit the Word of God is the Spirit-empowered gospel of Jesus Christ spoken to those who are perishing. It is the thing that can set the captives free, that delivers us from the wrath of God. It is the power of God. That's why we agree with Paul in Romans 1.16, right? That we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This gospel this word of God under the empowerment of the Holy Spirit is that which has saved us. And as we know, it is powerful to save all who have been called by our Lord. Therefore, the sword of the Spirit, God's word, is to be taken up by each of us. It's grounds for confidence for each and every Christian as we point back to and realize that we've been given the very word of God empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. It's not confidence in our words or our abilities to fight or even our abilities to put on the right armor. It points to something outside of ourselves. It is not the confidence in these things alone, but in the confidence of God himself. We are witnesses. We know this. We may not see multiple conversions when we proclaim the truth, but that's not the point. That is not the point. God will save his people. We can be confident of that. But we are called to trust God, to be confident in his spirit as we pick up the gospel, share it, testify the truth that Jesus Christ is truly king over all. But we are called to trust God, to be confident in his spirit as we do this, not to be ones that would be confident in ourselves or in the way that we speak it. The devil knows this and he hates it. But do we know it? Do we have the same confidence this is truly then armor for the battle. This is the confidence that comes from knowing that God's word is effective, that it is empowered by the Holy Spirit, who is the one who gives life. We can trust God fully, both then in his work, what he's done in salvation, but also in his word, brought along and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. So, with one short verse, we've covered a lot today. But I want to kind of bring us back to the beginning to close us out. Uh, you may be familiar with um, Aesop's fables. I don't know very many of them, but I just want to relay one to you. A lion used to prowl about a field in which four oxen used to dwell. 
Many a time he tried to attack them. But whenever he came near, they turned their tails to one another, so that whichever way he approached them, he was met by the horns of one of them. At last, however, they fell a quarreling among themselves, and each went off to pasture alone in a separate corner of the field. Then the lion attacked them one by one and soon made an end of all four. Now, the moral of the story is simple. United, we stand. Divided, we fall. Uh, it's certainly true. And it's a good message. We, we, we can agree with this. But if we use this as our confidence in spiritual warfare, we will fail. We're missing it. We cannot believe the lie that four or six or even a hundred of us oxen are any match for the ancient lion Lucifer, and more importantly, are any match for the God who judges sin. So I remind us, do not look to one another for our confidence. Do not look to yourself for confidence. The simple message that Paul is showing is look to God for confidence. Look at his work. Look at his word. Understand that you are his. As the song says, look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. So brothers and sisters, have full confidence in God's work and his word. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, we rejoice in you, in the one who has come bearing the helmet of salvation for his people, who has saved us from our sin, who has made a way for us to know the Father, reconciling us, God, giving us his righteousness. Lord, we're amazed by this truth and thankful. I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would help us this morning. Holy Spirit, that you'd empower us both to look to your word and be confident in your work. We pray that you would teach us to speak this, to know it, to use it properly. And Lord, that you would protect us in this spiritual warfare. God, may it really result in ultimate praise and honor to you not in us being so good at battle, but rather, Lord, you the one who have saved us by your own strong arm. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.